When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This programme is about the county of Mayo, the plain of the yew tree, and it centres around two people, my Aunt Babs in Turlow on the Castle Bar, Ballina Road, and secondly on my grandmother, Eileen McBride of Mallow Cottage on the Westport Morusk Road. As a child, these two women had an enormous influence on me, and many, if not all, of the poems I was to write 15, 20 years later concerning Mayo arose in great measure as a result of their influence on me. Although naturally it's only in hindsight that I can see that. Finally the programme centres also on the third area in Mayo, Ballina and Kalala Bay, where later in boyhood I was to spend many days the strange, strange years of adolescence. My father drove through the night in an old Ford Anglia, his five-year-old son in the seat beside him, the Rexine seat of red leatherette. And a yellow moon peered in through the windscreen. Daddy, Daddy, I cried, pass out the moon. But no matter how hard he drove, he could not pass out the moon. Each town we passed through was another milestone, and their names were magic passwords into eternity. Kilcock, Kinnegad, Strokestown, Elfin, Tarmanbarry, Tulsk, Balahadering, Balavari. Now we were in Mayo, and the next stop was Turlow, the village of Turlow in the heartland of Mayo. And my father's mother's house, all oil lamps, and women, and my bedroom over the public bar below. And in the morning, cattle cries and cock crows, life seemingly seamless garment gorgeously rent by their screeches and bellowings. And in the evenings, I walked with my father in the high grass 
down by the river, talking with him, an unheard of thing in the city. But home was not home, and the moon could be no more outflanked than the daylight nightmare of Dublin City. Back down along the canal we chugged into the city, and each lock gate told our mutual doom, and railings and palings and asphalt and traffic lights, and blocks after blocks of so-called new tenements, thousands of crosses of loneliness planted in the narrowing grave of the life of the father in the wide, wide cemetery of the boy's childhood. Here we are in Turlow, standing outside the old darkened homestead that was a public house and shop with a farmyard at the back. My Aunt Babs used to keep hens in there, and I remember stacking turf in it. The house is still a public house, now called the Round Tower Bar. Behind us runs the River Clyda, where as children we played endlessly, conducting Contiki expeditions across stepping stones and discovering Atlantic oceans around pebbles. In the evenings, we used to fish for perch. At the corner of the road leading down to the river is the National School, and at this corner on St. John's Night, bone fires used to be lit, and the next day, the smouldering plumes made us laugh. Three miles back down the road towards Ballina, you come to the village of Balavari, through which the Dublin Ballina railway line runs. The train no longer stops there now, but when I was a child, it did, and once a week my Aunt Babs used to entrust the cart and donkey to us children to bring a cartload of eggs to the station. And about 20 years later, in London, I adjourned to the solitude of a pub called the Gloucester Arms and wrote a poem about the road here from Turla to Balavari entitled Anna Swanton. I met her on the road to Balavari. She asked me, why do boys always hurry? And when I told her I had the train to take, she turned and said she'd come and wave goodbye. Along that wide road, blue, green and dusty, that lopes along the land to Balavari, I listened to her words come over to me as from over the most deserted ancient valley. We walked along the platform at Balavari. I stopped to pluck daisies to make a chain. I put it round her neck, and though it parted, I did not make another, for we had not. For the train no more stopped at Balavari. It had stopped for the last time the week before. Next year we got the station master's cottage and our children are growing up playing real trains. And yet although I live in terror of the tracks for fear that they should prove our children's graves, I live in greater terror of the thought of life without Anna Swanton on this earth. 
or of how I might be rich in far-off Nottingham and married to another kind of girl. I'd rather reign forever in the fields at Anna Swanson than a throne or a goddess in the sun. Just a hundred yards or so down the road towards Ballina, where the row of houses ends, there's a field on the side of a hill. And when you look at it now, maybe it looks a very ordinary field. But to us children, it was no mere patch of green. It was a garden of Eden, thistles, ragworth, grass even. It was known locally as the High Meadow. And about 16 years later, in exile, in a grim abode between Croydon and Epsom, I wrote a poem about it entitled, And That Being So. My soul is the high meadow we played in, my friend and I, when we were young, the high meadow where we danced round a fairy ring. My soul is the figure of my first love, skipping quickly across the sands, her hair dyed yellow with that wise round her laughing eyes. But the high meadow's been built upon, and that being so, and my first love gone, my soul must climb the stairs of rebirth round the hearth fire of song. And now we are in the Church of Ireland graveyard, which is on a hill the far side of the river from Turlow. Babs, with a twinkle in her eye, used to tell us that we'd go to hell without a doubt if we so much as stirred a foot inside the Protestant graveyard. And 20 years later, I wrote this piece entitled The Weeping Headstones of the Isaac Beckets. Protestant graveyard was a forbidden place, so naturally as children we explored its precincts, clambered over dry stone walls, under elms and chestnuts, parted long grasses and weeds, poked about under yews, reconnoitred the chapel whose oak doors were always closed, stared at the schist headstones of the Isaac Beckett. And then we would depart with mortal sin in our bones, as ineradicable as an arthritis. But we had seen enough to know what the old folks meant when we would overhear them whisperingly at night refer to the headstones of the Beckets, they would make you weep. These arthritises of sin, for although we had only six years each on our backs, we could decipher brand new roads, open up through heaven's fields, and upon them 
like thousands upon thousands of people kneeling in the desert, the weeping headstones of the Isaac Beckett. We're back now on the Turlow side of the river again, uh, this time in the Roman Catholic graveyard, situated on a hill overlooking the Ballina Road. The graves, including the grave in which Babs lies buried with my grandmother, are clustered around a round tower erected in the 9th century AD. Turlow is associated with St. Patrick, but unlike many places associated with that strange man of the mists, who came out of Wales in the 5th century AD, Turlow's association with him is not necessarily fictitious. Scholars are now inclined to agree that the wood of Fucklet, spoken of by Patrick in his confession as the place he saw in his dream and to which he felt compelled to return, was in fact situated hereabouts in North Mayo. As a child, I came to watch many funerals here, and one in particular at which seven sisters keened their departed father. Myself and my cousin William were so affected, so terrified, that we started to laugh. Twenty years later, in a tiny flat in London, with Nessa O'Neill and our two daughters, Sarah, named after Babs, and Shivra named after those other people of the skies in whom Babs believed as deeply as she believed in God, I wrote this next poem entitled simply Turlow. Wake up once more in Turlow, troll the sun for the red at twilight and her cold black veil. Glimpse through these broad green leaves that trail down your eyes a lemon-yellow kingdom. This daybreak is a round tower in whose eyes crouch flyers of the six-foot deep. Let the winds pour until our very sides themselves do weep and our punched heads flower out of laughter. It is for her passing that we woo her. And when, in the afternoon, late and gone, all the windows of the townland are laid out in rows, the river leaps to pronounce its blessing, and the young men change with the girls, and the tower comes down. When I was 13, I broke my leg. Being the sensible, superstitious old lady that she was, 
my ancestor knew that while to know God was good, to get the ear of his mother was a more practical step. Kneeling on the flagstone floor of her kitchen, all teaspoons and whins, outspoken as Moses, she called out litanies to Our Lady. The trick was to circumambulate the shrine fifteen times, repeating the rosary, telling your beads, and so that is how I came to be, hopping round Knock Shrine in the falling rain. In the heel of that spiritual hunt, I became a falling figure clinging to the shrine wall, while mayo rain pelleted down jamming and jetting, and while all the stalls of relics and files of holy water and souvenir grottos and souvenir postcards and spheres which when shaken shook with fairy snow and sticks of knock rock were being folded up for the day. I veered on, falling round Knock Shrine in the hopping rain. Gable, O oh Gable, is there no respite to thy mercy? The trick did not work, but that is scarcely the point. That day was a crucial day in my hedge school of belief in the potential of miracle, in the actuality of vision. And therefore, I am grateful for my plateful of hopping round Knock Shrine in the falling rain. The wind is blowing because we are now standing on Patrick, the reach in Mallow Cottage, far down underneath us, at the foot my grandmother lived, and so I grew up under the reek's shadow. I climbed the mountain both on pilgrimage nights and on other nights. In the early dawn, I saw the sun in the east, and the extraordinary vision of the 365 islands of Clew Bay rising up through the sea and the skies. And out of all this arose my poem entitled O Westport in the light of Asia Minor. I've often been asked about this title. I had as a child a deep-rooted feeling that far back in time all that was and is in my race and people came from the area known roughly as Asia Minor. The area that stretches from Yugoslavia and Greece in the west over to Armenia and Georgia in the east. On top of the reek here, I used to feel that the winds and mists had transported us westward from those far places in the east. The people in the poem are my grandmother, Eileen McBride, and her half-sister, Maud Gon. Granny spent most of our girlhood with Maud Gon in Maud Gon's exile in Normandy. And as a child, I used to listen, fascinated, to Granny's recollections of their years in Normandy and Paris, 
and about my grandfather, Joseph McBride, and his brother, Major John McBride, Gay John, as Granny used to call him. John was such a gay man, she used to say. And in the living room in Granny's house, there was a painting by A.E. of Granny and Maud in Normandy, reclining on a vast, deserted shore at ebb tide.
starting out of their britches out onto the stony shore. The sea was a great unnamed flower whose leaves they stood under and danced to ring upon ring. Thin, prickly, bearded men casting ridiculousness to the multitude, casting it in great armfuls made bountiful by the slow and graceful whirling of their arms, and they sang as though a rock were naked. Regularly as a child, I visited my grandfather's grave in Ockawar graveyard under the reek. The grave here is a five-foot-high cairn of stones. Although a Roman Catholic, he asked my grandmother to promise him that no statue be erected on his grave, and that instead a small cairn of stones, as in the so-called pagan times, be erected over his resting place. Granny did not understand this, but she kept her promise, painful as it must have been. In death divided, they were not. Lonely, 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 lonely. The story with a middle only. left Westport and driven back across Mayo to Ballina, back through Turlow of the trees, Balavari of the railway station, Strayed of Michael David, Oxford of the blankets and the nuns, back down along the curving moy to Ballina. Standing on the main bridge in Ballina, leaning on the wall facing downstream towards the estuary in Kalala Bay, to my left Emma Terrace, where my father's brother used to live, my uncle Mick Durkin, and my late Aunt Mary, in whose house I spent happy days and nights. Years later, in London, early one morning, on the top deck of a red London transport bus, the number 52, I suddenly saw all those years again, and a poem entitled Ballina, County Mayo, opened up before my eyes. It is the last time before the river meets the sea. At evening in summertime, young men and old men stand on the bridge watching the waters flow under them, under the arches. They lean their elbows on the wall 
with their hands cupped as if in prayer. But though they may in themselves be kneeling, they are standing squarely on the callous pavement. The air is full of reasonableness. If their own faces float past them, they are not bothered. They do not dwell or harp on it. And if, at their life's end, they whisper for a priest, it may be because of what they can hear among all these waters, silences, and sounds, such as the tiny object that being borne along helplessly upon the waters is seeming to say, let this chalice pass from me. Or it should be reported, making the sound that these words make, and how can we not say with meaning too? Poor splinter, trapped in the emotion. From the top of the tower of Moyne Franciscan Friary, you can see the Moy estuary and the whole of Kalala Bay curving from in the east in a scrone across Bartra Island over to the round tower of Kalala in the west. From the age of three or four, my father had me imbibing the remembrances of the French landing at Kalala. I spent thousands of hours wandering around the shores of Kalala Bay. In Dublin, during the golden summer of 1967, I wrote this piece entitled Crazy Cradle Bay. The son of Owen is a fisherman who sleeps while his mates fish. He's the man who delivers the final blows when the nets are emptied on the pier at dawn. His father, the shopkeeper, charges sixpence for a fivepenny ice cream. His wife is as clean as she's lean, and his mother remembers you in her dreams. But if you down twelve pints in Roger's rest, you too might see the ghosts of the sons of the son of Owen walking the waters of crazy Cradle Bay. In our kitchen in London in spring 1970, one morning, I was minding Sarah, then aged nine months, and she was playing with a duck on the kitchen floor with me sitting at the typewriter at the kitchen table. And I wrote this piece, again arising out of Kalala Bay, entitled The Nun's Bath. I drink to the middle of it all. Between the sandhills, the sandhills, between the hayfields and the sea, there stood a tub, and in it, a buxom nun who scrubbed herself as if the early morning air was itself the water. A water dance that was being wound round her by a yellow duck. Now here in this gruesome London pub, I make myself the middle of it all. 
I know that when I stand to get my beer, another nomad may well steal my stool and let the barmaid be mournful if she will. My job is to be present, which I am. There is the day ahead with more or less agony than to suffer all day in the convent of mercy. Up here in the Tower of Moyne, I can see not only the panorama of Kilala Bay, but just across the fields from us, the massive Japanese factory of Asahi. On a bleak winter's day five years ago, many moons before the novel The Year of the French, as I stood here in this tower with my brother Ivan, this next poem took flight in my head, entitled backside to the wind. A 14-year-old boy is out rambling alone by the scimitar shores of Kalala Bay, and he is dreaming of a French Ireland, backside to the wind. What kind of village would I now be living in, French vocabularies intertwined with Gaelic and Irish women with French fathers, backside the wind. The Ballinar Road would become the Rue de Humbert, and wine would be the staple drink of the people, a staple diet of potatoes and wine, backside to the wind. Monsieur O'Duffy might be the harbour master, and Madame Duffy the mother of thirteen tiny philosophers to overthrow Manute, backside to the wind. Father Malloy might be a worker priest, up to his knees in manure at the cattle mart, and dancing and kissing on the streets at evening, backside to the wind. Jean Arthur Rambo might have grown up here, in a hillside terrace under the round tower. Would he, like me, have dreamed of an Arabian Dublin, backside to the wind? Gartha Ned McHale might now be a gendarme in hysterics at the crossroads, excommunicating male motorists, ogling females, backside to the wind. I walk on, facing the village ahead of me, a small concrete oasis in the wild countryside, not the embodiment of the dream of a boy backside to the wind. Seagulls and crows, priests and nuns, perch on the rooftops and steeples, and their Anglo-American mores are killing me, backside to the wind. Not to mention the Japanese invasion, blunt people as serious as ourselves and as humorless. Money is our god, Backside 
to the wind, the medieval Franciscan friary of Moin stands nobly house-high by. Past it rolls a vast concrete pipe, backside to the wind, ferrying chemical waste out to sea from the Asahi synthetic fiber plant. Where once monks sang, wage earners slave, backside to the wind. Run on, sweet river moy, although I end my song. You are the scales of that salmon of a boy, backside to the wind. Yet I have no choice but to leave, to leave. Yet there is nowhere I more yearn to live than in my own wild countryside, backside to the wind. I had to go and work in office blocks in Shepherd's Bush, and I worked such hours that I could not write letters. I spent my few free hours in the railway tavern talking with a Carlo-born clerk and two Belfast bricklayers but I came back to you, Lord Mayo. Now you are older and angrier, and I am still young and gay. And what, my lord, are we going to do? If you were but to smile once, as once you used to, I'd jump into bed with you forever, for I came back to you, Lord Mayo. I'd go live with you in the wilds of Eris, rearing children despite bog and rain. I'd row with you the dark depths of Beltra and of Khan, if you'd but smile on me, for I came back to you, Lord Mayo. Mm -hmm.